The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. A very good afternoon. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And I'm Caroline Hepker. A warm welcome to the programme. So the Prime Minister, he turns his back on the Swiss ski resort of Davos. Instead, he's going to be meeting with nurses at Downing Street today. Yes, well, it's very much the idea of reinforcing the people's government message. It doesn't look good, apparently, to uh, stand alongside the global elite in the snow. Uh, It looks rather better to stand uh, against the people that uh, he promised he would help during the election. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And, of course, whilst the pound has actually slumped Mr Johnson's, uh, on the back of Mr Johnson's Brexit strategy, at least two of the rating agencies are now looking a bit more favourably on the UK. So the credit Outlook's actually been upgraded by S&P and Fitch. And the pressure on Mr Johnson to deliver. We're going to be talking funding the North with our guests later in the programme. We've got a guest from the Centre for Cities and a guest from the Manchester Chamber of Commerce to talk about how much money is needed and where it should be directed. That's all coming up later in the programme. So let's talk you through some of the action then this morning because not just the Prime Minister uh, who's been uh, catching our attention also the last Labour leader to win a general election election. Uh, Fill in the blank here, Tony Blair, of course, uh, warning the party not to whitewash the scale of its election defeat. Now, he was speaking earlier. He urged his colleagues to change course or face electoral oblivion. I thought they were already there. Uh, He says that Labour has had a strategy for defeat with no direction on Brexit. We pursued a path of almost comic indecision, alienated both sides of the debate, leaving our voters without guidance or leadership. The absence of leadership on what was obviously the biggest question facing the country then reinforced all the other doubts about Jeremy Corbyn. Meanwhile, the leadership contest continues with the shadow Brexit secretary, Keir Starmer, saying he's seriously considering putting himself forward to succeed Jeremy Corbyn. And of course, you'll have heard Barry Gardner, shadow international trade secretary, refusing to rule himself out for the leadership or indeed the deputy leadership on this very programme yesterday. Meanwhile, Lisa Nandy, who's the MP for Wigan, she's another potential leadership hopeful. She says she thinks they need to speak to voters about what went wrong last week. In this election, and for a long time before it, people have been saying to us, the system is not working and you are not listening. So the first thing that I think we all need to do, just to spend a bit of time banging on doors and asking people what they think and why they felt amongst lifelong Labour voters that they couldn't vote Labour this time. 
So that was Lisa Nandy. But of course, there are plenty of other names also in the frame. Jess Phillips, Rebecca Long-Bailey and Emily Thornbury uh, tipped to join the race to become a Labour leader too. Well, let's talk about all this with Bloomberg's UK government reporter Rob Hutton has joined us in the studio. So, Rob, thanks for being with us. Good afternoon. Now, OK, well, first of all, let's let's kick off with the whole Davos issue, because that is very interesting. Talk about image here. It's a very significant thing, I suppose, because in the past, the Conservatives have not been averse to wandering around in the snow, having rather nice meals and uh, talking to the people who, after all, in some ways control the world. No, and indeed, Boris Johnson has not been averse to going to Davos. He was famously uh, photographed having a pizza dinner there with David Cameron in 2013. Uh, in 2014, I found a fantastic video of him yesterday uh, <laughs> speaking to the Wall Street Journal um, in 2014 about how Britain was definitely not going to leave the European Union. So uh, he, he, he's not opposed to that. And indeed, his his argument at the time for, for going at a time of sort of austerity in Britain was that it was a great place to go and meet people who could pay for things in Britain. Yeah. Um, infrastructure investment. And infrastructure so on. investment. Yeah, to go out and make the, make the case. And Part of what the government says it wants to do is, is what it calls its sort of global Britain initiative, which is to say, I know that this Brexit thing looks a bit funny from abroad, but I promise you we are not retreating from the world. This, in fact, is this will enable us to engage more with the world. Yeah. Um, so, so not going, shooting yourself in the foot then, surely? Well, that's the argument. There was an interesting um, sort of response from Rupert Harrison yesterday. Rupert was uh, now at BlackRock, but um, was George Osborne's chief advisor. And Rupert said exactly this, go out there and make the case for Britain. And he said the government has to decide whether it's campaigning or governing. Mm. Um, and good, this feels awfully like campaigning. Yeah, although to be fair to him, to, um, Theresa May didn't go uh, this year, earlier this year. She went b- the year before that. So, and you know, people like President Donald Trump was going, then decided not to go and cancel. So it's not like world leaders have to be there or go every single no, time. No, although May didn't go because her Brexit deal was collapsing its way through Parliament mm. at the time. <laughs> Okay. Thanks partly to Boris Johnson, in fact. He could go if he wanted to go, and they've made a very conscious decision that they don't want to go. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the other side, as it were, the Labour Party. Now, I mean, it, it would be, I think, reasonable to say that the amount of vitriol and uh, infighting has well, surprised several people about how quickly it's begun, not least, I suppose, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, apparently in Parliament yesterday, uh, having a very uncomfortable time with his MPs. And now lots of names appearing to be in the frame and lots of mud being flung at them. Yeah, so I was outside that meeting uh, last night, the meeting of the Parliamentary Labour Party. It normally goes on for slightly under an hour. It went on for over two hours. Uh, you're, it's a private meeting, but if you're sitting outside it, when the door opens or shouts, you can hear noises, you can hear. And the there was a fantastic moment uh, when the door opened, just as I think a, more or less the only MP to defend uh, Corbyn was say, had, had sort of given a long talk about all the things that, that she thought he'd done right and and then said, of course, the election did go badly. And, they, and we, this we, <laughs> the door opened as we and we heard these words. Of course, the election going badly. And then these hoots of derision from the um, from the the from her audience. It was a. I mean, everyone we spoke to uh, outside said it had been a a, a brutal time mm. for Corbyn. Just MP after MP saying Brexit was not the problem. You were the problem. But uh, then. I'm quite surprised. I love that bit of colour. It's so fascinating <laughs> to get that. But, you know, but Mr Corbyn lost last time round as well. 
Well, yes, but they don't think. I mean, there's a really interesting when you look at everything that the sort of, as it were, the Corbynistas and Corbyn himself say. They their argument is that you should look at this election in the round and you should include 2017 when he did better than expected. Although, you know, as you say, other people come back and say, but also lost. Um, it, yeah. I, there's a sort of every time Labour people say we need to understand this election. Actually, my my response is. This 2019 is not the difficult election to understand. Uh, 2017 is the difficult election to understand. In in 2019, we got the result that we expected in 2017, which is when you put a, a leader who is far outside the political mainstream. That's not a party political point. That that's who he is. Who whose views are are quite different from indeed most of the Labour Party. I mm. mean, his views on sort of international affairs, the role of NATO. Um, which side should have won the Cold War are not on a very, very long way from the mainstream. When you put someone like that up, you would expect them to lose badly. And the fascinating thing is in 2017, he only lost... He lost quite well, I suppose, <laughs> if one can do that. But, uh, OK, well, let's, let's move it on to the next stage, because mm. yeah. clearly the point now is who is going to succeed him and how the party will change. Now, we've got various people, uh, I say on this very programme, Barry Gardner kind of said, well, he's certainly not ruling himself out. Keir Starmer, I think, speaking this morning, the BBC was something, something similar. But a sense that that is, is maybe the time for a woman leader. It's the only major party that hasn't had one. Where do you see this going? Who do you think are the key people to watch? Well, so the the, the sort of the leadership's anointed successor, whether that's a helpful thing or not, um, is Rebecca Long Bailey, mm. um, currently the business spokeswoman. She she was put up for some of the debates. Um, uh, as you say, Keir Starmer is is favourite among what you might call a lot of the Remainer um, side. Uh, Emily Thornbury is being advised by Damien McBride, who used to advise Gordon Brown, and I would never rule out anyone who was being advised by Damien McBride of anything. Yes, yes. Um, uh, I mean, they're, they're, yes, and then you sort of, you go to what you might call the Northern Women, you've got uh, Lisa Nandy, you've got Jess Phillips, who are both uh, quite good performers, um, both were quite critical of the leadership. I think it's a mug's game trying to <laughs> trying to bet at this stage. I, I was going to ask, but okay, I, I shan't. Um, look, do we care about Tony Blair? Does the Labour Party care about Tony Blair, who was speaking this morning uh, and obviously telling the party and telling members that you know there needs to be a wholesale change of direction? Well, I think that is the question, because this is up to Labour Party members. And the, the, what will determine this is whether Labour Party members look at what happened last week and say, oh my goodness, we've been getting it all wrong, which is the Blair argument. Blair argument is... There's this idea that you could tr- that, uh, that you could try have, as it were, Corbynism without Corbyn. That he was the problem and his policies the weren't. Ideals, stay, um, yeah. So, so there that that idea is is floating around. And Blair had a nice pith- pithy line on that 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 you don't just need to change a driver; you need to change the bus. Do Labour Party members look at what happened last week and say, "Yeah, my goodness, he's right. We've been getting it all wrong," or do they say? Yeah, there was a problem with Jeremy. If if only we sort of had that offer, but with different, do the different leader. Will it all come down in the end to the unions, which we've always historically thought are the power brokers in the Labour Party? Not perhaps so much now, but is that where the power in this is going to come? Do you think? I'm not sure it does because of because of the way the voting structure is now. It's I mean, you, there are a lot of union votes and. Um, I mean, the unions helped Ed Miliband to win in 2010, but the the, the Electoral College was different then. Um, Jeremy Corbyn did not win because he had union endorsement. 
Um, although uh, he then had an awful lot of support from Unite. Jeremy Corbyn won because he had uh, he had the, the membership base. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. Let's take you through uh, what is making the news in the world of politics in terms of all the big newspaper stories. The Daily Mail, Roger. Yeah, now they have an interesting piece by Henry Dees. Rather cruel piece, I have to say, watching uh, Jeremy Corbyn returning to Parliament after his crushing election defeat. When he spoke, Henry Dees says, I half expected cartwheeling tumbleweed. You could have carved the atmosphere on Labour's front bench with a busted teaspoon. Never had there been such a sullen heap of corpses, each propped up in silence alone. Alone, awkwardly trapped in pain thought like patients in a dentist's waiting room oh that, yeah ouch <laughs> it made me shudder that one uh, but okay that's a very vivid picture being uh, painted uh, by the daily mail uh, also in the mirror labor knows why it lost can it learn how to win almost every single labor fig- figure of course has a theory about why the party lost almost no one has a prescription for how it gets out of this mess so this by jason Beatty in uh, the mirror yeah he said tony blair in a speech this morning which we've now heard made no attempt at accommodation. The former leader was withering in his assessment of Corbyn, saying Labour gone into the election with, quote, a strategy for defeat. For good measure, he warned Labour is finished if it stays with the politics of Corbyn and must recapture the party from the far left to begin the march back to power. As a three-time election winner, he says, Blair deserves a hearing, but here was not surprisingly any admission of how his legacy and furious lobbying for Remain may have played a part in Labour's defeat. Yeah, so uh, that's quite fascinating. But also, uh, one hears a Again and again, this refrain that Boris Johnson must now deliver on his promises. It's in a lot of the newspapers, including the local newspapers in the north of England, I note. Uh, And so just for one little example, Roger, the Committee on Climate Change in a letter to Boris Johnson calling uh, for action to cut emissions from, well, everywhere, buildings, transport, electricity, you name it. The UK must get its house in order on tackling climate change. And actually, the committee is chaired by a Tory Lord Devon, calling for basically an immediate, ambitious and properly funded strategy. Well, speaking of funding, Boris Johnson's pledged his party will repay the trust of voters in the north of England who backed his party for the first time in the election. The Tory manifesto pledged to oversee an infrastructure revolution as well as £22 billion of capital spending for specific projects in the manifesto. The party's given itself room to spend another £80 billion on capital investment. So... What might that money be used for and where? And I'm pleased to say joining us here in the studio is Paul Swinney, Director of Policy Research, Centre for Cities, who was with us a couple of weeks ago before the elections come back. And on the line, we've also got Subramanian Krishnan Harihara, who's Head of Research at Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to both of you. Um, Subramanian, let me come to you first, if I may, and say, what is it that where you are in Greater Manchester, what is it that should be funded and how much do you need to do it? Well, the first uh, thing is um, is the requirement for the North to have infrastructure spending. Um, there has been historic underinvestment in uh, public transportation. 
in the north. Um, and we want this dealing from electoral promises. Uh, and that's the fundamental thing. Now, there are long-term infrastructure projects which are being talked of, and this includes Northern Powerhouse Rail, uh, the uh, HS2 um, coming to Manchester and probably going um, up to Leeds. And, but these are long-term projects, and they clearly last beyond one or two parliamentary terms. So in the short term, we want to see improvements in rail commuting, in a new rolling stock, um, and those interventions are needed to not only address uh, congestion in Greater Manchester, um, but also to put Greater Manchester on a uh, you know green growth pathway. Uh, well, let's bring in Paul Sweeney on this, because I note also that the Manchester mayor, Andy Burnham, was making this very point just in the recent days, saying that there needs to be investment in the north now, not just sort of uh, in decades to come. Do you think that that is likely what, what would need to be invested in? And who gets that money? All really great questions. I think the the first element is that yes, we need investment from today. I think pretty much, you know, clearly there's a there's an issue with the performance of the North of England generally, which isn't just something that's happened in the last five or ten years. It's actually a century long at least in terms of this this sort of underperformance. And we need to be playing a bigger role in the national economy and improve performance in the national economy overall. But in terms of what we invested in, we've got to be careful here. I think the um, when we make big announcements about money, it's almost like the outcome is that we spent money. Hurrah, we spent it. And but the reality is that if we're actually trying to change the things we want to change we've got to think about what we spend it on and how exactly we go about doing that and I think the big fear is that when we think about lots of money to spend we think about kit and infrastructure and trains and we're going to you know build better rail lines we have to take a step back though and say well what is the problem that we're being faced particularly in our cities in the north of England and will spending more money in infrastructure be the answer and also Paul if I can pick up with you the mechanism of it because many people will remember the PPP the public private partnership that was a vehicle of spending uh, in the last Labour government, uh, which has left a lot of local authorities with money to spend. They have to spend now because the things that were built were not built by them or not owned by them. Exactly. And this is all part of the detail in terms of how exactly we go about putting these policies in place. And again, it, we sort of the policy win for, for national politicians is make an announcement that we're going to spend money. But that's just an input to what we're doing. It's not the output. And that's what we've got to focus on. What are the ends that we want to try and achieve? Look, Subramaniam, uh, the, the issue, though, here is also that this is a theme and has been a theme for, what, five, ten years, the underinvestment in the north and specifically the push to try to uh, bring the north up in terms of economic output, GDP growth versus the south, tax income and so on. It hasn't happened under the last Tory governments. What do you think is going to be different about this Johnson administration? Well, uh I think the, the, the previous um, coalition government did try to make some efforts. So the Northern Powerhouse idea that George Osborne was championing was, I think, a, a right step in this direction. Um, and devolution to Greater Manchester and other areas actually started as a result of that. But completely agree with you. You know, these, these mantras have been repeated for a long time. Um, but what do we think is going to be different this time? I think the fundamental um, uh, shift... Um, you know, in, in the garment formation, in the con- composition of the current parliament, etc., has uh, changed. That's one thing. And the second thing is people have given a clear message now. And we have powerful mayors in different parts of the north. You know, Liverpool City Region has a mayor. Uh, Andy Burnham is, is a great champion for Greater Manchester. And I think they will probably start having some effect and influence 
on uh, these commitments which are coming from central government. Well, Subramani, let me let me pick up on that with you as well, because I think one of the key things here is not just throwing money at an area, not just giving money, just saying, right, we'll build this, even we'll, you know, we'll build trains, we'll build hospitals, whatever it is. The point surely is to regenerate the economy so that it won't need that kind of funding in the future. The whole point is almost like starting the engine. Uh, What are the things that would do that? Well, in Greater Manchester, for example, at this moment, there is a lot of discussion about the uh, GM clean air plan. We have been asked by central government to come up with a plan to reduce emissions within Greater Manchester. Absolutely important. The problem here is we have a plan. TFGM, the Transport for Greater Manchester, has put up a plan, but the funding is not available from central government. So funding is an important issue. And, you know, with the right kind of government support, um, I think Greater Manchester can transform, not just Greater Manchester, but even the rest of the Northwest can transform its economy. Mm. Uh, we need investment in um, skills. We need investment in housing. And the one thing which was slightly disappointing in the manifesto on housing particularly was that all of the measures mentioned were tackling demand side interventions rather than you know trying to tackle the very difficult issue of supply. And our feedback that we get from businesses in our quarterly economic survey and in other fora is that there are businesses facing two key challenges. One of those challenges is the unreliable nature of public transportation here. And the second is the high cost of housing, you know, generally in, in the north, which is then exacerbated by long-term undersupply. So these are the other issues that need funding mm. as well. So it's not just spending on these mega infrastructure projects. And they make for great headlines, you know, no doubt at all. Yeah. But but they don't actually always result in uh, the kind of economic growth that is uh, needed. So, you know, connecting different parts of um, the north together, you know, that east-west link is absolutely important. But so is the link from, you know, one part of Greater Manchester to another, the, the, the link from uh, Greater Manchester uh, to, say, Liverpool or from Liverpool to Leeds. Those things yeah. are extremely important as well. And just the basics of going back to sort of house building. Well, Paul Sweeney from the Centres for Cities, there's been a lot post-election around cities now being more conservative than they were before. But do you think that Westminster is going to take on board this idea of more devolved decision making, more power actually for the cities? To, to, to make their own future? Well, I certainly hope so. I think the big difference is that we've now got a, a mayor, a former mayor who's now prime minister, and that Boris Johnson was mayor of, of London. Good and point. I hope that um, he will be enlightened enough to see that actually that mayoral position in London was a great thing for London and ask himself the question, well, if London has got these powers already, you know, which is one of the strongest cities, not just in the UK, but in the world, why wouldn't we extend those those powers to elsewhere in the country? Manchester's got that to some extent, Liverpool's got to some extent, Leeds has got nothing. So what we like to see is, is devolution to places that haven't got it, but then more devolution to places like Manchester that have now got a track record and been able to use the powers that they have. But to- the, the Tory governments in the past have been terrified of powerful local government. You look at the Thatcher period, mm. they were absolutely trying to pull the power in from Liverpool, from London mm. itself. So they might not be willing to do so, that. So it's quite an interesting dynamic because um, you would have thought that the introduction of Metro Mayors would have been something that a Labour government would have done, but actually it wasn't. It was George Osborne that really pushed for this. So the Tory actually have a bit of a um, uh, sort of up and down record on this sort of thing and I hope by now having a, a former mayor in place actually they'll have the position to put these, these powers in place Bloomberg Westminster listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London
The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.